Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. We are actually going to be able to finish Hosea today. We're doing two chapters, chapters 13 and 14. And uh, I don't know about you, but I've really enjoyed... Uh, this is the first time I've studied through uh, the book of Hosea, so I've really enjoyed doing that, and uh, it's been it's been really cool. So, um, you know, one of the things that, and I don't know if you've picked up as we've gone through uh, the book of Hosea, but uh, there's really a flow of narrators. It's not just Hosea speaking. So Hosea is speaking part of the time, and then part of the time Jehovah is speaking. The Lord God is speaking. And it kind of goes back and forth. And as you're reading it, sometimes you have to stop and go, wait a minute, who's talking? And, and uh, so uh, chapters 13 and 14 are, are no different than that. We'll see a flow uh, of no narrators going through there. Um, and you'll recall back in the very beginning when we looked at the uh, introduction to Hosea that uh, Hosea was a very unique prophet. Um, you know, all of the prophets had uh, things that they were required to do as part of their ministry for being a prophet to either Israel or Judah. Um, Hosea had a very interesting thing because the Lord God told him to marry a prostitute named Gomer. And uh, she was unfaithful to Hosea. And uh, Hosea was required by God to go and to purchase her back and to love her. And we talked about that in the very beginning of Hosea. And so as we've been going through this, you know, as the Lord's been giving Hosea words to speak to the northern kingdom of Israel, you know, Hosea the man, the person himself, better than anyone else, was qualified to speak God's words to his people because he had that real burden, the same burden that God had uh, for an unfaithful people. And I think God was really doing a work in Hosea as well. And, uh, and so, you know, as we've been going through that, I, you know, every once in a while, I, I didn't really mention it through some of these chapters, but, you know, as you read it, uh, you know, maybe later on you want to go back and just read through the whole book. It's 14 chapters and just kind of reflect on it. You can really pick up God's heart through Hosea, how he's just, his heart is broken for his people. And, uh, and yet there's judgment coming because of their sin, but it, it doesn't please God. God's not you know, taking joy in, in what's taking place there. It's, it's breaking his heart. And so in chapter uh, 13, we'll pick it up here in verse 1. It says, When Ephraim spoke trembling, he exalted himself in Israel. But when he offended through Baal... Uh, through Baal worship, excuse me, he died. And so here we see the comparison or the contrasts. When Israel, when Ephraim, when they were humble, when they had humility, then God exalted them. When they were fell into idolatry, then they experienced spiritual death. And that sounds really, really severe when I say spiritual death. But you know, that was what God had told the children of Israel way back in the beginning when they were just becoming a nation, back in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, as they were getting ready to enter into the promised land, the Lord through Moses called, uh, spoke to Israel, and he says this, I call heaven and earth as witnesses today against you, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life 
that both you and your descendants may live, and that you may love the Lord your God, that you may obey His voice, and that you may cling to Him, for He is your life and the length of your days, and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to give to them. The Lord God says it's a simple choice. It's a choice between life and death, obedience or disobedience, Uh, humility or idolatry, or you could say spiritual pride. You know, King Saul, the very first king of Israel, he started out his reign in humility. He was a very tall person, very big guy, but he was a very humble guy. He started out in humility, and God blessed him as he was humble. But then he started to disobey God's commands. And at one point, God told Saul, said, kill the Amalekites. Don't spare any of them. They're, they're wicked people. Just completely wipe them out. Don't save anything. Just, de- just destroy them. And Saul started to, but then he disobeyed God's command, and he decided to spare King Agag, and he decided to keep back some of the best things that the Amalekites had. And the Lord God sent Samuel the prophet to Saul. And in 1 Samuel 15, verse 17, Samuel told this to Saul. He says, When you were little in your own eyes, were you not the head of the tribes of Israel? And did not the Lord anoint you king over Israel? Man, when you were small, when you were humble, man, that's when God exalted you. You know, it's the same thing for you and I. When we're humble, God can work through us. God can be glorified through us. It's when we become prideful that He can't. You know, sometimes, I don't know if you ever wonder about this, but, you know, sometimes I'm sitting here worshiping, going, am I really worshiping the Lord truly the way He wants to be worshipped? Or, you know, do I have it kind of confused? And, you know, true worship is described in Isaiah 66. In verse 1, it says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me, and where is the place of my rest? For all those things my hand has made, and all those things exist, says the Lord. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. That's what true worship is. It's humility before the Lord God, trembling at His Word. You know, we're studying through God's Word. I'm sharing the Lord's Word to you. It's not my Word. Now, of course, I'm talking about it, but when I'm reading God's Word, that's God's Word to you and to me as well. And we're not to just like, oh, blow it off, man. That, that, we're, to, we're to really, you know, we're to tremble at His Word. We're, we're to reverence God's Word. We're to say, if the Lord's saying this, boy, I better be doing this. I better be in obedience to it. Jesus himself said in Luke 14, 11, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so when Israel, when Ephraim, when they, when they, when they trembled, when they were humble, man, that, that's, when, that's when things were right. They had a right relationship with the Lord. But when they became prideful, when they started worshiping idols, that's when uh, bad things started to happen. That's when that relationship was broken. Verse 2. Now they sin more and more, and have made for themselves molded images, idols of their silver, according to their skill. All of it is the work of craftsmen. They say of them, let the men who sacrifice kiss the calves. So they were increasing in sin, and, you know, increasing sin increases, uh, leads to increasing superstition. 
Kissing the calves, that's kind of a weird phrase, isn't it? But, you know, we see that. Sometimes if you watched a movie, sometimes, and I, I, I can think of, I don't know the movie, but I I've th- remember certain movies where someone's about ready to do something, and, and uh, for good luck, they'll pick up their crucifix and kiss it, and then they'll go and do whatever they're, you know, have you ever seen those adventure-type movies and stuff? Someone kissing a, an icon or kissing a crucifix or, or kissing the feet of a statue or, when I was a little kid, rubbing a rabbit's foot. I don't know if you guys ever had a little, rab, you know, little chain thing, keychain thing, a little rabbit's foot for good luck, you know. Uh, but that's superstition, you know, and, and the thing is, what God is talking about is the children of Israel, the people of Ephraim, they had a false sense of security because they still worshiped the Lord in their own way. I mean, they still had, you know, some idolatrous practices, but they mixed it in with their worship of the Lord. And it gave them a false sense of security. And, and this kissing the calves is, is basically like that, kissing an icon, basically. In other words, you know, I can do my own thing as long as I cover my bases. And that was the attitude that they had. And what's the result of that? Verse 3, Therefore, they shall be like the morning cloud, and like the early dew that passes away, like chaff blown off from a threshing floor, and like smoke from a chimney. In other words, they won't be established. They will fade away. So now we get to verses 4 through verse 14, and now Jehovah is speaking. The narration changes. And now Jehovah is speaking. In verse 4 he says, Yet I am the Lord your God, ever since the land of Egypt, and you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. And so here you could just sense the heart of God. He's reminiscing to an earlier time, back to the time when the children of Israel were being delivered when God delivered them from from Egypt, when he delivered them out of slavery. It's much like Hosea going to retrieve his wayward wife, Gomer, to buy her back from a life of prostitution. In fact, let me read it to you. In Hosea 3, verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to me, and this is Hosea speaking here, Then the Lord said to me, Go again. Love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel, who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. And so this is what Hosea did. It says, so I bought her for myself. I mean, that's his own wife. I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and a half homers of barley. And I said to her, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man. So too I will be towards you. Hosea, you know, he understood what God was speaking because he knew that he experienced in his own life. And so the Lord God basically is reminiscing to that time when he delivered the children of Israel, out of their slavery, out of their bondage in Egypt. He says, And you shall know no God but me, for there is no Savior besides me. If that sounds familiar to you, that's what Peter said to the Sanhedrin in Acts 4.12. He says, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. There's no other salvation. There's no other route. You know, all roads lead to God. That's true, actually. Do you know that? All roads lead to God. But only one of them leads to salvation through Jesus Christ. Eventually, everyone's going to stand before God. They'll make it there. They'll stand before God. But will he be their Savior? That's the question. It'll be either be judgment or be salvation. Well, again, here in verse 5, Jehovah is speaking and he's reminiscing. Look at this, verse 5. I knew you in the wilderness, 
in the land of great drought. You know, in the wilderness, you think of the wilderness, that's a, it's a barren place. It's maybe a difficult place to pass through. A, a, a time of drought, that's time, a time when, there, when, when there's, you know, there's not enough water and, and it's just like you're in dire straits. It's, it's a time of desperation. Well, during that time, the children of Israel were dependent on the Lord. You know, out in the wilderness, they didn't have food around it. God provided the manna for them. They were thirsty. There was no streams of water flowing around. God provided water out of a rock to them. They were literally dependent on God for their very life. And at that time, they had a relationship with Him. A desperate independence. And you know, that's what happens when you and I go through difficulties in life. When we go through a time of drought, you know, that's when our relationship, that's when we, we cling to the Lord because we have no other options. It's like, Lord God, I need you. And, and our relationship is so strong with the Lord. But look at verse 6. When they had pasture, they were filled. They were filled and their heart was exalted. Therefore, they forgot me. See, God's looking at the contrast. Back when you, things were dire for you and when you were desperate, boy, that's when you had a relationship with me. But as soon as you had plenty, as soon as you were at ease, then your heart was exalted. And we're talking about spiritual pride. And then they forgot God. Verse 7, So I will be to them like a lion, like a leopard by the road I will lurk. I will meet them like a bear deprived of her cubs. I will tear open their rib cage, and there I will devour them like a lion. The wild beast shall tear them. You know, God says, I'm going to come out, I'm going to pounce on you. I'm going to, this judgment is going to be severe and it's going to be swift. You know, people living in Tuttle, Oklahoma. You ever heard of Tuttle, Oklahoma? People living in Tuttle, Oklahoma, driving down the road, probably took. Tiger Safari Park for granted. You know, you don't think about it. Yeah, there's some wild animals in that, in that park, and they're just driving on, doing their own thing until May 6th. That was the day that we moved into our house, Wednesday, May 6th. A tornado hit Safari Park, and all those wild lions and tigers, all of a sudden, they were out in the community. And the police were sending out warnings saying, you know, don't go outside of your house. There's lions, tigers, and bears. I mean, it's like it's bad out there, you know. And uh, they ended up, nobody got devoured by them. They ended up corralling them all and bringing them back safely into the zoo. But, you know, this is what, this is what God is picturing here. You guys are ignoring me. You're doing your own thing. But you know what? I'm coming at you like a lion. I'm, I'm going to devour you, you know, because you've been ignoring me for so long. And God's judgment would be swift and severe. And you know, the thing is, it's our human nature. We tend to forget God when things are going well, when we have plenty, when we have, when we're at ease, when things are, you know, it's like I'm making things happen. I'm okay. As soon as we, things get, you know, dire for us, that's when our relationship, you know, starts growing. Well, of course, ideally for you and I, man, we should be just, there shouldn't be any change, right? We should be in a, close relationship with the Lord, whether things are good or whether bad. That's, that's our goal. I know that's your goal as well. But our human nature is, is to tend to forget God. Verse 9, O Israel, you are destroyed, but your help is from me. I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities? And your judges to whom you said, Give me a king and princes. I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. 
you know, pretty soon they're going to be forced to realize that those things that they trusted in were not able to save them in the day of calamity. You wanted a human king. Okay, where's your king now? He says, I will be your king. Where is any other that he may save you in all your cities and your judges to whom you said, give me a king and princes? I gave you a king in my anger and took him away in my wrath. You know, the children of Israel, they wanted to have a king, just like all the nations around them. Rather than allowing God to just lead them, to to guide them, to be their king, they wanted a human king. They cried out for a king, and so God gave them their selfish desire. Sometimes, you know, uh, I hope that God never gives me my selfish desires, you know. Lord, give me this, give me this, give me this. He said, okay, I'm going to give you this, but I'm, you know, it's not my best for you. Well... The children of Israel, they cried out for a king and God gave them Saul. And you know what happened to Saul? God removed him because Saul was a sinner. Uh, Jeroboam, the the northern tribe of Israel, they split off from from, uh, the northern kingdom, split off from Judah and Benjamin. They became their own nation, basically, and they made Jeroboam their king. But God removed him. God completely wiped out his line of descendants, too, because of the wickedness of Jeroboam. Later on, there was a king by the name of Pekah, and uh, Hoshea took him out. In fact, a lot of those kings at the end of their of, of Ephraim's reign or Israel's reign before the Assyrians took him captive, they were they were assassinating kings and putting themselves in place. It was crazy. Um, but Pekah was taken out by Hoshea. Hoshea was the last king of the northern tribes of Israel before they went into captivity, and the king of Assyria took him and deposed him. So they, they wanted their own selfish desires, and God gave it to them, but then because of the sin, God removed them. Verse 12, The iniquity of Ephraim is bound up. His sin is stored up. The sorrows of a woman in childbirth shall come upon him. He is an unwise son, for he should not stay long where children are born. The sins of the nation, the sins of the people have been accumulating. You know, they say our generation, you know, it depends on what generation you're from. If you were like born and you lived through the Depression, you know, people tend to save money if if they experience going through the Depression. Of course, I don't think there's many of us that have you know, experience that. Most of us were born after that. Um, and so, you know, you know, depending on what generation you were born in, you kind of look at things differently. In our gener- my generation, I don't know about yours, but my generation, people don't tend to save as much as people before did. And it, it's, it's an interesting thing. Well, you know, our nation, I think, as a whole is our, you know, we're so many of us are, are strung out on credit. You know, it's crazy. And, and we're not a nation that saves. But you know what? There, we do save in one way. When we don't repent of our sins, we're storing up judgment. We're saving up judgment. Paul said this in Romans 2, verse 4. He says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. People are storing up judgment because they're not repenting of their sins. And they say, well, you know, nothing's happening right now. Well, God is gracious. God is slow. Just like we were singing that song, he's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He doesn't want anyone to perish, but he wants everyone to repent. And so people mistake his patience for his, God doesn't care. I can just do my own thing. 
And God all along is, is giving people time to turn their lives around to repent of their sins. And so people, because they're not repenting of their sins, their sins are accumulating. They're treasuring up judgment for themselves. As opposed to, and listen to this, Colossians 2 verse 13. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So there's, on the one hand, you have people not repenting of their sins. They're treasuring up sins. And you and I who have fled to Jesus Christ, those sins that we're accounting, you know, they, it's like we've got this list of sins that we've committed, all these things, the, the written law that we violated, and we've got all these charges against us, and Jesus Christ has taken it and He's nailed it on the cross. And it's gone from you and I. We, we don't have that sin. We don't have that shame. We're forgiven. We're justified. Verse 14. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be your plagues. O grave, I will be your destruction. Pity is hidden from my eyes. You know, God here is speaking about the judgment that's going to come. And then right in the next breath, you see his compassion again. God doesn't want to destroy his people. God loves his people. And so here he's prophesying. And in the, in the immediate and the national sense, he's speaking about the restoration from Assyrian captivity. And he's also speaking of the restoration from Babylonian captivity. And I believe he's also speaking from the restoration from the Roman dispersion after World War II. It's amazing. We're living in a time when these prophecies are being fulfilled. Um, you know, Ezekiel... Chapter 37, verse 12 says, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord, the Lord God, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. You know, if you go to the Holocaust Museum, the National Memorial in Israel, um, as you enter in, there's a, there's a large parking lot, and as you're entering into the, this property, and it's a sprawling complex of buildings and, and parks and stuff where the Yad Vashem uh, Holocaust Memorial is. But as you cross in there, there's this arch over just from the parking lot as you go into the, into the, the, the property. And as you get across, if you look at the arch, it has Isaiah 37 verse 12 inscribed on it. It says, Behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Because the nation of Israel is a miracle. It really is. So in the sense, in a national sense, Israel, for 2,000 years, I mean, they were off the face of the planet. I mean, they didn't exist as a nation. And they seemed by all human accounts as being dead and gone. And yet God, as Paul says in Romans 4.17, God who gives life to the dead and calls those things which do not exist as though they did, God resurrected the nation of Israel. Miracle. I love that verse because sometimes you and I in our own lives, we have situations that we face that it looks like there's no hope. From our perspective, it's dead. And yet God can change that. God can call those things to life, those things that you and I would call dead. But, you know, God's not only concerned with bringing the nation of Israel back as a nation, you know, from what seemed hopeless and dead. 
God's more concerned with people's souls than just the nation of Israel. Paul quotes this passage of Scripture in regards to the resurrection of believers to life. Verse Corinthians 15, and I'm going to read a few verses, says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. That, I love that. We should have that over our nursery. We should not all sleep, but we should all be changed. That's... Yeah, if you're a nursery worker, you might get that. Um, Behold, I tell you, mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be written, uh, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, the sting of death is sin. But guess what? Jesus removed our sins when he bore them on the cross. He, took, he removed them from us. He was the scapegoat uh, for us. He bore our sins away. It says the strength of sin is the law. It's, it's a violated law. But you know what? Jesus fulfilled the just requirements of the law for us. Man, the victory that you and I have in Jesus Christ, what a blessing. And there, back in verse 14, he says, Pity is hidden from my eyes. And you go, what, what does that mean? Well, it actually means repentance is hidden from my eyes. And what God is saying there is that, you know, he's not going to go back on his word to redeem his people, to deliver his people. And, and that's such a blessing for me because, you know, you're, you and me, we're those that are blessed because we haven't seen Jesus and yet we believe. Remember Jesus said that to, to Thomas when Thomas was, was doubting that he was resurrected from the dead? Thomas said, hey, you believe now that you see me? Blessed are those who, who believe, who have not seen. And that's each one of us here this morning. I've never physically seen Jesus. I've seen him reflected in a lot of you, by the way, all of you. But I haven't seen Jesus, and yet I believe in him. And, you know, what a, what a blessed hope that is for believers. You know, we have loved ones that pass away and... and they go on before us. And if they have a relationship with Jesus, we, we don't mourn like those that, that have no hope because we have hope, right? What a difference. You know, I've done some funerals. What a difference doing a funeral for believers as opposed to unbelievers. It's a big difference. I mean, you can just sense it. In, you can feel it when you're, when you're there. But, you know, we have this hope in the resurrection, in our own resurrection, not only the resurrection of Jesus Christ in our own resurrection, but, you know, what a, what a blessing to know that God's not going to last minute. Going, you know what? I changed my mind. Uh, yeah, you know, your, your coupon for heaven expired. <laughs> you know, it's God's faithful in that promise, that blessing. He's not going to change his mind. God, you know, he, he's, he doesn't change like humans. We change. Sometimes we go back on our word. God does not go back on his word. Now back in verse 15 and 16, Hosea is speaking once more. 
says, Though he is fruitful among his brethren, an east wind shall come. The wind of the Lord shall come up from the wilderness. Then his spring shall become dry, and his fountain shall be dried up. He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. You know, back when Jacob, who later was changed to Israel, his name was changed to Israel, back when Jacob blessed Joseph's two sons. He had two sons. One was Ephraim, and one was Manasseh. And Manasseh was the firstborn. And Joseph brought uh, his, his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, to, to, uh, to Jacob to bless. And so normally what would happen is the, the, the father would put the right hand on the firstborn and the left hand on the, the next one because the right hand and the firstborn, it's like there's a priority, there's a preeminence there in the blessings. And Jacob did just the opposite. He crossed his hands. And Joseph's like, whoa, dad's getting a little senile here. He's, you know. and, and Joseph was all upset because Jacob was putting the blessing of the firstborn on Ephraim instead of Manasseh. And, and, and Joseph was trying to move his dad's hands. And his dad says this, says, But his father refused. This is Genesis forty-eight nineteen. But his father refused and said, I know, son, I know. He shall also become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly his younger brother, and he's talking about Ephraim, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By... Uh, by you, Israel will bless, saying, May God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. And then here's a commentary here. It says, And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. Well, Ephraim became the tribe of Ephraim. And this prophecy was fulfilled in the tribe of Ephraim because the tribe of Ephraim became the largest of all Israel's tribes. Their name, the tribe of Ephraim, became synonymous for that whole northern kingdom. That's why when I'm reading about Ephraim, I'm speaking about the northern kingdom. But it, man, it's like synonymous. But that's how that's how much uh, that's how much the uh, Ephraim had success, worldly success. They had fruitfulness. They had increase. But you know, fruitfulness in a worldly sense, success in a worldly sense, increase. There's no, that's not a guarantee of spiritual fruitfulness, spiritual success, and spiritual growth. In Ephraim's case, it wasn't. And that, true, that saying that comes true, he has been given much, much would be required. Ephraim was blessed in so many ways materially and, and, and bountifully and with land and everything and, and the amount of people and everything. It seems they were so successful, and yet God was going to hold them accountable because of that success. And, of course, they failed. Because with God's blessings come responsibility to use those blessings for His glory. Has God blessed you? I hope you're using His blessings in your life for His glory. Because that's what's important. The he there in verse 15, it says, He shall plunder the treasury of every desirable prize. Now, in my Bible, it's capitalized. So the translators think that that's the Lord God speaking. I think it isn't necessarily. I'm not going to argue with scholars, but um, I think it's probably referring to the king of Assyria. Oh, you know, he's going to come and he's going to plunder Ephraim. Well, you know, you could argue that it's God because the king of Assyria is really the instrument of God's judgment. So either way, I guess God is God is the one who's orchestrating it. But because of their sin, God would remove all of Ephraim's increase and all of his blessings. Verse 16, Samaria is held guilty, 
for she has rebelled against her God. They shall fall by the sword. Their infants shall be dashed in pieces and their women with child ripped open. I mean, that is such a vivid, crude picture. Such atrocities were common back then. You know, in Second Kings 8, Elisha is prophesying to a guy by the name of Hazael. And he and he's prophesies and says, Hazael, you're going to become king of Assyria, or king of Syria, excuse me, and you're going to do this to Israel, ripping the children out of the wombs of, of mothers. In Nahum 3.8, we read that the conqueror, we're not told who the conqueror was, but the conqueror of no Ammon did this to the inhabitants of that place. In Psalm 137, it alludes to the Babylonians doing this to the children of Israel. In Amos 1.13, the Ammonites did that to the pregnant women of Gilead. In 2 Kings 15.15, Menahem, which is one of the kings of, of Ephraim, did that to the inhabitants of Tifsha. And you go, wow, that's so barbaric. It's, so, it's just hard to comprehend. But you know, and this is my opinion, since 1973, it's been legal to do that in the United States. Ripping children out of the womb. It's been happening through abortion. So before we're so quick to judge generations before us, we really need to look at our generation and our culture because we're no different. We're really not. Well, chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, Hosea is speaking here. He says, O Israel, return to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity. Receive us graciously, for he will, or for we will offer the sacrifices of our lips. Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands, You are our gods, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. You know, this is basically this last chapter. It's kind of like the epilogue or, of Hosea. It's like the sum of the matter. And here's Hosea saying, he's urging the people of Israel, Confess your sins. Repent. Turn away from them. Return to the Lord. He says, take words with you. That, that's confession. Confessing your sin. And what are you to say? You're to say, Assyria shall not save us. We will not ride on horses, nor will we say any more to the work of our hands. You are our gods. It's, it's confession and it's repentance. Repentance is turning away from our idols. We're not going to follow those things. We're not going to worship the work of our hands. We're going to turn away from those things. It's confession and repentance. He says, for in you the fatherless finds mercy. Again, recognizing God's mercy, that we have a compassionate and a forgiving God that you and I worship. Now verse 4 through 8, Jehovah is speaking. Verse 4, you know, you're coming to Him. You're, you're, you're confessing your sins. You're repenting of your sins. What's God going to do? How's God going to respond? Verse 4, I will heal their backsliding. I will love them freely. My anger has turned away from them. What does God do when we turn back to Him? He heals our backsliding. He heals it. Not only does He forgive you and I, but He restores the damage that we have done to ourselves through our sin. God restores. He says, My anger has turned away from Him. What a blessing to be in that relationship where you're no longer fearing God's judgment, but you're loving His grace and His mercy and His forgiveness. Verse 5, I will be like the dew to Israel, and he shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. I had just enjoyed studying these last few verses 
because I saw these beautiful pictures in here. He says, I will be like the dew to Israel. Now, if you're in a very dry, arid climate, dew would be refreshing. It would be what gives your plant, keeps your plants growing, you know, because there's not water, there's not rain and stuff. And so that, just that sense of refreshment. God says, I'm going to be refreshment to you. Um, so he shall grow like the lily and lengthen his roots like Lebanon. You'll find refreshment, not fear from the Lord. He says, he shall grow like the lily. In other words, he's saying you're, you're going to grow. You're gonna, there's going to be spiritual growth. And lengthen his roots like Lebanon. Now, you know, uh, when you have a plant that's got roots that go down really deep, they're able to survive storms. You know, they, they, the, the storms come and go, but the, the plant, if it's got a good root base, it's going to stay there. It's not, it's not going to get blown over by the storms. And also, when, it, when you do go through a period of drought, those roots, they go down so deep, they get down to where there's moisture, where there's water. So, so if you sense, if you get that picture, what he's talking about is not only are you going to be spiritually grown, but you're going to you're going to develop these root system. You're going to have this foundation that when the storms come, and they always come in our lives, when the storms come, you're going to stand. You're not going to get wiped out by those storms. Not only that, you might go through a period of dry time, but you're going to find that refreshment. You're going, to find, you're going to find that time, you know. Uh, sometimes we go through really difficult times in our life, and it's those times, man, when you and I, when you have that developed, that relationship with the Lord, you can draw on it. You can draw on it, you know. You go through a period where it's like, I don't know why this is going on in my life, but then you draw on it. You go, but you know what? I know God loves me. Man, I, I have all these scriptures that show that God loves me and he's not going to forsake me, and you draw on that. And that, that's that root base that you and I get. In our relationship with the Lord. That's what he's saying here. Verse 6, he says, His branches shall spread. His beauty shall be like an olive tree and His fragrance like Lebanon. His branches. His branches shall spread. Well, branches are where fruit is found. You don't find it on the trunk of a tree. You always find it in the branches. And so what I believe he's speaking about is not only are they going to have that good root base, not only are they going to grow, but they're going to be producing fruit. They're going to have fruitfulness. His beauty shall be like an olive tree. You know, sin makes you and I ugly, but the Lord makes us beautiful. And the more and more you reflect Jesus Christ, the more and more you are beautiful. And His fragrance like Lebanon. You know, uh, it's funny. I used to work with this lady at IBM, and uh, uh she usually came in about the same time I came in. Or I always knew when she came in. I always knew when she was in the building. You know why? Because I would walk up these stairs, and it was like, whoa. <laughs> I could just smell this perfume. I was like, okay, I know that lady's there. Because, uh, you know, her perfume followed her wherever she went. It was really, really strong. And uh, But that's the picture here, the fragrance. It, it, you know, it leaves an impact on people. Now, if you have an allergy to perfumes, like my wife, it leaves a bad, a negative impact. It's like, oh. Man, I can't breathe. This perfume's really hard. But but that's the sense. It leaves an impact. And for you and I, when we have repented of our sins, when we've confessed, we've repented, we're growing, the Lord's restoring us, you and I start leaving an impact wherever we go. Paul wrote that in 2 Corinthians 2.14. says, Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of His knowledge in every place. For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. You're a fragrance. You leave an impact on people. 
And then verse 7, it says, Those who dwell under his shadow shall return. They shall be revived like grain and grow like a vine. Their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. It's almost like he's repeating what he just said a few verses earlier, isn't it? But what he's speaking about, those who dwell under his shadow shall return. That's speaking about those who dwell under Israel's shadow, the nation of Israel. They shall return. They shall be revived. They shall grow. And their scent shall be like the wine of Lebanon. And when you and I are restored to a right relationship with the Lord through confession and repentance, we're refreshed. We grow. We're established in our faith. We've got that base, that foundation. We're able to withstand storms and droughts. We produce spiritual fruit. We have this beauty to us. We reflect Jesus Christ. We have an impact, a fragrance of Christ wherever we go. And guess what? When we're growing and fruitful like that, those that are under our shadows, those that are around us, we reproduce other disciples. People want what we have when we're in a right relationship with the Lord. Verse 8, Ephraim shall say, What have I to do any more with idols? I have heard and observed him. I am like a green cypress tree. Your fruit is found in me. Basically, Ephraim would be cured of their penchant for idolatry and rebellion, and they would finally be in a right relationship uh, with the Lord. And, and once you're in a right relationship with the Lord, God says, I can hear you now. I, we have that communication now. Because sin breaks our communication with the Lord. But when we've dealt with that communication, when we've confessed our sins, when we've repented, we've turned away from them, that relationship is restored, and now we can communicate with the Lord uh, in, a, in a close relationship. And God is saying on a national level, this is what's going to happen after the uh, Ephraim goes into captivity. And you know, historically, now we don't know exactly when the tribes of the northern tribes came back into the land. People talk about the lost tribes of Israel and all that. But after Assyrian captivity and certainly after Babylonian captivity, on a national level, when you looked at the nation of Israel, they no longer had an, had an issue with idolatry anymore. They were cured of it. I mean, they, they didn't accept Jesus as their Messiah, so there's, you know, God's still doing a work in them. But as a national, they never worshiped Baal anymore. They never did, you know, the Ashtoreth, all those other abominations. They, they, they were cured, uh, having gone through that period of, of uh, captivity. Verse 9 now, Hosea is speaking, and finally it's just kind of like summing up this whole book. Who is wise? Let him understand these things. Who is prudent? Let him know them, for the ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but transgressors stumble them in them. So are we wise this morning? You know, do we understand that this is not just a historical prophecy about the northern kingdom of Israel? Do you, have you been sensing that this is God's heart towards you and I as well? Because he loves us just like he loves Israel just like he loved Ephraim. And he wants you and I to have that right relationship. Man, he wants to use our lives. He wants to produce fruit in our lives. He wants us to grow. He wants us to survive through the storms of life. But it's only through a right relationship with the Lord. And so that's the whole purpose of, of the book of Hosea, that we would sense God's, hearts and God's heart and that we would understand, hey, yeah, we're reading about Ephraim, but you know what? I see application for me in this. That's the key to this whole book. So praise God. We've made it through the book of Hosea. What a wonderful time of study. I hope you've enjoyed it. Why don't you stand up? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
and uh, we'll be dismissed. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for Hosea's life. Lord, we thank you for his obedience to you. Father, it must have been a difficult thing that he had to do, Lord, as, as being a prophet uh, for these northern tribes, Lord, and when they were in all that sin and, and uh, debauchery and, and everything that they were doing, and then he himself had to love someone who was hard to love. Father, um, we, if we're honest with you, we would admit that we've been hard to love many times. Lord, we, we would admit that we've been unfaithful many times. And Lord, we are always amazed at your great mercy and your compassion towards us. And Father, I pray that, Lord, if nothing else, Lord, we would see your heart in this passage that we've studied these last couple weeks. Lord, that we would see that you desire to have that relationship, that close relationship as intimate as a marriage relationship between a husband and a wife lord that's what you want between yourself and each one of us your bride and so father i pray that we might uh, respond in obedience to your word lord that we might tremble at your word lord that we might be humble and that lord we might allow you to produce fruit in us lord as we obey it as we obey you and obey your word. And so we thank you for your word this morning. We ask your blessing upon each and every person here today. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.